You hear daily about breaches, ransomware, and other threats to your business, so you decide to pick up a cyber liability policy. But did you know your policy may have requirements to meet on your end to collect? Stick around to learn more. Welcome to today's Simple IT Podcast, where we make IT that simple. I'm Brett Johnson, president of Simple Route, and I've got Conrad Wells here, our system security engineer. We're going to dive a little bit into cyber liability coverage. Um, just a, a quick disclaimer, though, um, we are not attorneys. So this podcast is really being provided for informational purposes. Uh, we always recommend that you involve your attorney before implementing or acting on insurance matters and when building a comprehensive cybersecurity strategy. So just um, kind of a quick overview of some stuff we want to cover. Um, you know, I, I think, Conrad, um, you've got a lot of background on on different things that could actually trigger events. Um, so I, I think it's going to be great to hear some of what you've got. Um, you know, I, I know I want to cover a little bit about why businesses buy a policy, um, you know, what, what they're safeguarding against, um, talk about some of the, the common mistakes I think I see companies making, even those backed by an MSP uh, with respect to security. And, you know, talk a little bit about some of the, the requirements that may actually be buried inside your policy that may actually prohibit you from collecting, uh, depending on on um, the policy you carry. So, and um, so first off, welcome. Uh, thank you. Uh, I've got some stuff I want to talk about, talking about risks that businesses face with cybersecurity, as well as some pitfalls that they fall into. And we can just touch base on on those. You know, looking, I think, a little bit on, you know, why a, a business would buy a policy, peace of mind is really important. But, you know, I think a lot of people don't think about some of the the threats that face their network, whether it be, you know, ransomware attacks, um, you know, demands for monetary reimbursement. Um, even if even if you mitigate an attack, you know, we're, we're seeing people held hostage, you know, to potentially pay out to not release that information publicly. So a, a lot of these things, are, I think, are, are pushing people to pay ransoms where they maybe even have proper safeguards in place and, and don't want to, you know. And so this is something that, you know, even five, 10 years ago, I, I think people were in a very different place with respect to their comfort level, where risk was and, and the systems they put in place. Right. Um, you know, I, and I think, you know, looking too at the whole ransomware scheme, I don't think people always are aware of how many different things could potentially impact their business, you know, all the different vectors that could come in through. And maybe it's worth kind of talking a little bit about some of that and how that could actually impact them and what that could mean in terms of cost losses and, and other things like that. Yeah. So speaking on ransomware, most of the times that'll come in, you'll, you'll come into the office and you've got a ransom notice that all of your files have been encrypted and you need to pay uh, in order for your files to be decrypted, which is a huge problem if, you know, that's on your company file share where all your documents are. Suddenly, you know, you, you can't do business anymore. And even the FBI has come out and said, like, honestly, the, the best course is to just pay the ransom if you don't have proper mitigations in place, be that backups or uh any sort of off-site storage of your data that you can just roll right back. 
Yeah, well, and you know, I think it's funny too because I think, especially in the small business sector, I think a lot of people say I'm I'm too small to be a target. You know, they, I'm, there's nothing of value here. You know, and I I think sadly a lot of people don't realize that their money is just as green as targets or, or something like that. You know, and the fact of the matter is we keep seeing this happen at a big business scale. And I, I think one really important point to consider is that if a company as large as Target or Home Depot or or one of these sorts of, of large companies with massive cybersecurity plans in place can't safeguard their stuff at 100%, chances are you're not going to be able to either. And as those companies get more advanced, I think these threats actually trickle downstream to smaller smaller fish. You know, and so I, I see a lot of people pushing kind of from that top level all the way down. And I think at the very small business level, it, it hasn't gotten nearly as bad as I'm starting to see it higher up on that chain. But yeah, I, I'd agree with what you're saying. Yeah. And that's absolutely right, because what you're seeing in the news is these big businesses. And what you're not seeing is the small businesses that are impacted by that. And when attackers get to move like, hey, I, I had this great attack that worked on these large businesses, you know, the whole industry moves to patch those holes. but uh, oftentimes implementation of that sort of lacks behind on smaller businesses. So smaller businesses remain a target for much longer. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's kind of interesting too, because ransomware is something that it's kind of a hot topic thing, even in those cases today, like I said before, where, you know, they, they actually, you know, successfully mitigated it. Maybe they stopped it midway through, they had good backup, they were able to roll back. Um, wasn't it the university of Utah, I think, um, don't quote me on that one, but I'm doing that one from memory. Uh, but there was one university recently that actually got hit um, and their data actually was um, held ransom, not within their network, but they had it off site. They actually restored everything from backup and they told them, we're going to release all of these records publicly if you don't pay us. And so they're turning to this kind of weird extortion scheme piece of it um, that, that's relatively new where now you have all of the right IT pieces in place. And if they exfiltrated that data, you know, they're, they're threatening to put that publicly. And then, of course, you either pay up and, you know, hopefully you're able to, to get them based on their word not to release this or you don't. And, you know, there are provisions in some cyber liability coverage policies to, to protect you in both cases from ransomware and also from being able to, to stop, um, you know, that, that extortion scheme by paying them off to effectively do that. So, you know, I think it's important to read those coverage policies and make sure that you're, you're taking care of that, you know, that, that you have some sort of fallback there if this were to happen to you. Yeah. And unfortunately, or I guess sort of unfortunately, uh, most of the, the criminals will agree if you're paying that ransom, because if it, it's known out there that, hey, like if you get hit by this ransom and you, uh, and you pay what they're asking for and they're still going to release that information, then people are just going to opt for not paying. Uh, the same with decrypting your data. There were there was an instance where there was uh, an encryption that went out. Uh, and if you plugged in and you paid the ransom and they handed you the de- decryption key, it just wasn't valid. And that was kind of a whoops on their part. But they they kind of quickly fix those so that people are paying these ransoms because it's so lucrative for them. So what what else, um, you know, what other sorts of things do you see um, looking at kind of the, the threat landscape that may trigger some sort of cyber event? So uh, with COVID going out there and people working from home, we've definitely seen a rise in phishing campaigns 
where mm-hmm. people are impersonating, um, you know, a trusted source to sort of get you to, to sign in somewhere. And that goes all over the place from large corporations that are sending people home where they have, you know, remote access portals that they need to sign into to much smaller industries where, you know, it's, hey, I need to update my payroll information, go into uh, HR and suddenly someone's paycheck is going into the wrong account. Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny too, because I think a lot of people hear phishing and they they immediately look at one type of phishing. You know, they, they don't look at kind of some of the, the wide scale of, you know, different ways they can use a, an email crafted in your organization to gain access to something of value. So that that's something of value isn't necessarily always convincing someone to wire money. Sometimes it's convincing them to you know, to, to do that change of a bank account, to grant access to a computer, you know, run this, this support tool. I mean, even, even pretending to be, you know, IT support and, and trying to get you to run something just so they can break into your network. Um, you know, people, people fall victim to these things. Yeah. Um, and, and they're very convincing too. It's not, not easy to tell that this isn't real. No, if, if you're under a targeted attack, it, it's very hard to distinguish, you know, what is legitimate and what is, uh, illegitimate. But yeah. uh, oftentimes, you know, it, it, with phishing, you know, and they're gaining access into a, a network that is so that they can then turn around and sell that access, you know, on the black market as far as like, hey, I, I have credentials that work into this network. I have a, a VPN session and you can do whatever you want with it. And the only thing that they've done is just gained access. So this is weird, like, did they do something illegal by obtaining that? Yes, but the the consequence isn't quite as severe because they didn't actually do anything with it besides passing those credentials on. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, phishing kind of lends itself to, you know, an electronic means to, to break in, but I... I think, you know, even I, I've heard of um, deep fakes with audio, um, you know, where they, they've tried to to leave voicemail messages that are, you know, they can pump in data from your company president into a computer at this point, simulate that person's voice and leave the CFO a message that sounds like it's that president asking for a wire transfer. You know, some, some of these attacks are getting to this kind of like sci-fi next level that I don't think people ever really considered were possible. And I, I think a lot of those are, are really pushing the envelope with respect to, you know, what what we need to try to think about when we try to build these comprehensive policies and safeguards. Yeah, it, the technology is sort of scrambling to catch up with these kinds of things because you have, you know, both audio and video deepfakes going out there. And it's like, how do you spot that? You know, like if if the human ear can't distinguish it or the human eye can't distinguish, you know, we're going to have to lean more heavily on software to solve that problem for us as sort of things advance in the cybersecurity landscape. So what else, um, what else do you see in terms of, um, you know, potential threats that may, may trigger cyber events? So, um, and again, going back to COVID and people working from home, um, is a a lot of company hardware has left uh, a network where it, uh, usually would just hang out inside. You don't have to worry about it. You also have people who have laptops or, you know, other company devices that are, are being left or moved outside of uh, the protected area of the company. And, you know, what happens when that, that asset disappears, you know, are, do companies have the policies in place to uh, remotely wipe that, you know, is the device encrypted? These are some of the things that companies are starting to think about with sending so many people 
home or having the ability to work from home. Right. Yeah, I think people forget that their office building, you know, in a lot of cases is locked. Many offices have security cameras, you know, there's multiple people there. So just walking in off the street is a lot harder than breaking into someone's car or, or breaking into their house. You know, and so that that risk of loss, I think, is more real when you're you're talking, sending things all over the place. And it's a lot harder to keep track of. You know, it, it's easy to, to know if all of your computers should be on your desk. Are they all there tomorrow? But, you know, if, if everyone goes home, how do you know where all those things are? Um, you know, it, it really requires, I think, some additional due diligence to make sure that those things are there. And I suspect that if you were to look at the average time to report a loss, it's probably higher when those assets go offsite. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, with a, with people working from home and those remote assets, how do you verify, you know, what assets you're allowing to connect into your network? You know, of course, like the, the number one thing that I would say is to not allow people to use their own personal devices to connect up to your company network because you've lost a, a level of uh, trust. You suddenly have to just allow any computer to connect up to your network versus being able to really lock it down to only company owned assets. Right. And I think too, when you talk about assets going off site, you know, it, it becomes a lot harder to detect these sorts of breaches, you know, because someone, maybe they don't just leverage that computer um, and the data on it. Maybe they actually use that as an entry point into the rest of the network. Or maybe they they slipstream something into that system to try to get access to the rest of the network. You know, it, it's not as easy to do the forensics on that to to see what's really happening. So there's there's a whole host of security software and tools to try to try to aid in that. But from a, a notification perspective and, and what you need to then do if if you determine that, I mean, even the work to see how many people are impacted, who do you need to tell that becomes so much harder when you're talking a, a distributed network like that and, and where everything kind of lives. Exactly. And speaking to that, when an attacker is able to get in and, uh, you know, establish themselves, when it, it can be months before that that's even noticed. And then going back and having the logs to say like, okay, well, how did they originally get in becomes infinitely more impossible the longer it's gone on as, yeah. you know, lock cycle themselves. Well, and, uh, you know, I think it's funny because a lot of people, if you were to ask them how long, how long do your logs go back? Um, you know, they, they have a gross difference in what's probably really real. You know, most IT systems probably don't keep more than maybe a month. Um, most backup systems probably capture those, but only in points of time. Um, you know, and, and a month might be in some cases like way more than you know, like a lot of firewalls I've seen that are low end firewalls for small businesses. I mean, you could get two hours if you're lucky. Right. Um, there's just so much data. And so unless someone's actually said, yes, I fall under a compliance guideline, you know, th- these aren't things that they've actually really thought about or, or that they've put a policy in place for. And this opens up a, a risk where if someone does get in, how do you even know when it happened? And, you know, if there is a breach, um, you know, the, the challenge is that these costs can be astronomical because you have to tell everyone that could have potentially been breached. And so, I mean, I, I know of one incident where a, a single person's mailbox was breached and the cost was probably something around $250,000 between the forensic analysis, the notification, the, the mailing of things out to various states. Um, you know, I mean, more than half the states in this one, one company's uh, recipients 
um, were distributed across more than half the states. And so they had to figure out where are all their addresses, um, fill in the blanks on their information, tell them what potentially was taken. And in a lot of cases, it wasn't anything really major, but the attorneys general say you have to do this. You know, and so all of a sudden your costs skyrocket on, and that was just a single user email box. Um, but these things can really kind of get out of control. And so if you don't have the logs to know when they get in, then at some point you almost have to assume that they got everything they could have potentially accessed. And so if, if you can narrow that down and pinpoint potentially what they might've seen and how, you know, upfront you're doing a lot of work that could actually reduce your liability and your cost by, by a pretty big factor. But regardless, I mean, I, I think most businesses aren't sitting there saying, gee, this is a cost that I, I need to kind of factor into my day-to-day, -day, you know, operational costs, and I need to keep a nest egg to pay this out. And that, that's really where a cyber liability coverage can potentially, I mean, really keep a, a business afloat versus sink it into the ground. Right. And, um, and the other thing is, you know, how much of that is the MSP handling and, you know, do they have an understanding of what the MSP is going to assist them with and what they're not going to assist them with? You know, I, I think looking at the the MSP side, that's actually very common. Um, you know, it, it, I, companies that don't have an MSP, I, I see this a lot with, um, you know, but even ones that do, they make this assumption that IT has kind of come up with this, this strategic plan um, based off a bunch of business decisions they've made, but they haven't shared those business decisions. You know, case in point, if, if you fall under a certain compliance guideline, but you haven't told your IT department or your MSP that, they're probably not building practices and policies around that. And if you're not actively auditing those practices and policies, there's no way to know that you're secure. And so simply, you know, telling one person that, hey, we, we take credit cards doesn't necessarily trigger the right people to know that we need to be PCI compliant. We need to do these things. And as IT learns that PCI is something, if they're doing the right thing, they'll raise the, the red flag and say, hey, wait a minute, we need to have these discussions and what this means for your business. But I mean, I, I see a lot of people just kind of blindly assume that, you know, maybe their MSP is handling all aspects of their security um, when there's a lot of pieces that they're not going to know unless you really share the, the business insight into what you're doing you know, what, what that translates to in terms of risk and where the assets are that really need to be protected. You know, I mean, a, a sales share or a SharePoint drive with sales data, um, you know, is, is very, very much not something that IT is going to go into and figure out that you're storing everyone's social security number inside the application. And so there, there's an element there of there needs to be some open dialogue, I think, both with your MSP and, and with people within your business to really make sure that, you know, you've kind of looked at what are the risks and what are the policies um, that need to be in place to make sure you're, you're capturing those. And I, I think too, that a lot of people also then turn around and just assume that their MSP itself is an insurance policy. You know, the fact of the matter is most MSPs are, are not there to cover potential losses or to even pay a ransom. Um, you know, MSPs are there to check the right boxes to, to ensure that everything possible is done right up front to mitigate risk and to reduce it. But the fact of the matter is if large business can never 100% um, put that, that risk down to zero, then it's almost guaranteed that MSPs aren't going to be able to either. Uh, you know, and so when you're looking at you know, what happens when these things occur, you know, counting on those to, to pay the ransom or, or to, to solve that problem, I mean, this is really where you know your cyber coverage actually comes into play and, and really can help in terms of giving you leverage if you need to pay a ransom or, or take steps to to monetarily dig out of a hole. 
but you know, I mean, ultimately I, I, I see that quite a bit, you know, people don't really have those good conversations with their MSPs. They don't talk about their potential concerns. Um, you know, I mean, even down to if you were breached as a business, um, the, the amount of forensic work to identify who actually needs to be notified, what the damage is, um, what's been exposed is substantial. You know, and, and fact of the matter is that's not maintaining your network. Most MSPs are not going to cover that work. This is now an, an external threat. It's a consulting project to, to really dive deep into your network and expose what happened here in an event. You know, and, and a lot of MSPs aren't covering those sorts of, of pieces. It, it falls into the realm of insurance and, and really a reactive response. And so I think for a lot of people making sure that, you know, they have some sort of plan in place that could cover that. Because, I mean, let's face it, even forensic work is specialized. Um, you know, an MSP can tell you who logged into your account, where that came from. But unless you're talking in MSSP, um, doing managed security service provider work, um, you, you're really not getting into that level where you know, you're you're managing all aspects of that security well enough that you can go that deep and explain exactly where this potential breach came from and what it had access to and what they exfiltrated data wise. I mean that th there's an order of magnitude of, of cost difference between those two services. Yeah, and and speaking with my experience in actually doing data forensics, the, the tools behind that are quite pricey. Um, and a lot of uh, the tools that you'd use to even diagnose, to collect those logs, that requires um, a bit of setup beforehand. And they're a lot harder to implement after the fact. You know, you have tools like Splunk that you know, do some log management for you so you can go through your logs, identify issues. but you know, who's watching that, who's, you know, making changes to your network. And it's nice if you have it set up and you can hand it over and say, hey, like, here are my Splunk logs of, of this incident. I had a breach. Uh, it definitely simplifies the process. But Splunk is not a cheap product. There's dramatic costs. The longer you want to retain your logs, the more in depth you want to go into your logs, the number of machines that you have. Um, there, there's all kinds of uh, the things that go into that. But going back to what you were saying of, you know, like big businesses um, have breaches that small businesses are, are definitely going to have breaches. So the, the most common uh, misconception that people have about cybersecurity is that your risk is never going to be zero percent. You can always follow. You can follow all the guides. You can take all the steps that you need to. But um, that's just to get your risk down. Um, at the end of the day, the, the most important piece with cybersecurity is, you know, having that comprehensive uh, incident response plan. You know, what are yeah. you going to do in the event of a breach? You know, how long are you going to be down, uh, which is critical um, because, you know, if, if you have a breach where you need to shut down operations, how long is that going to be acceptable for your business before it becomes detrimental to the future of the business? Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's funny because it's kind of like exercise on some level. Um, you know, I mean, you, you can try to reduce your risk of heart attack and stroke, you know, but it, it's one of those things that no matter what you do, that risk is never zero. Um, I guess that's not true. When, when you're dead, that that might fall to zero. But <laughs> outside of that, you know, and it, the same is probably true in a breach. You, you know, if your business is closed because you were breached, then your risk of another breach is probably zero, but, um, yeah, I, yeah, they're similar, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah, right. 
but you know, I mean, you're totally right. And that, that's where I think in a lot of cases, you know, the, well, we bought that, that, that appliance, we put the sock service in place. Um, you know, we, we are monitoring our logs. We're even keeping them for a year. You know, we have backup. We, we even put a retention policy in place and we know that we can get our server back up in, you know, a, a matter of hours if need be, because we have all these tools and things in place. Even if we're ransomware, we've got snapshots of things and, you know, we have a, a plan in place in a lot of these cases to roll back and you've done everything right. They then have that data offsite and they say, well, we're going to release the social security numbers of every application you've ever taken or every employee you have or every whatever. And and all of a sudden it's, okay, well, <laughs> do you pay $500,000 to prevent that or do you let them release it? And they will release it. They do this. Um, you know, I, I think the scary part of all of this is that there's no guarantee that they don't do it later. Um, yep. You know, that I, I, I see a lot of these things and we're all paying these extortion fees. And at what point do one of these foreign entities that are, are playing these games just say, you know what, we're tired of this. We're just going to dump all this data. But so far, they've upheld their end of the bargain. And, you know, I think it's because these plans and these schemes are so lucrative that they really don't want to, you know, to be in a position where they can't keep doing it. So. Yep. Exactly. So the, the other thing that I, I wanted to touch on um, is this idea that, you know, you're a small business, um, so, you know, you're not worth being a target um, or, you know, you don't have any information that's worth taking. Um, and uh, uh, Verizon actually ran a report back in 2018. Um, their breach investigations report found that 58 percent of cybercrime victims were small businesses. And those are businesses that have less than 250 employees. And then Malwarebytes uh, looked at their report in 2017 and a quarter of those businesses uh, had to shut down for at least a day and upwards of three to four days uh, to clean up a, a breach response. Well, and this is where I think it becomes really important to to make sure that you have some sort of comprehensive strategy in place. I mean, you mentioned the incident response plan. That's incredibly important. Um, but, you know, I think even beyond that, the, the cyber liability insurance policy becomes kind of the one of the big pieces of your, your arsenal so that you have that safety net. And, you know, going back to the original point of the conversation, I, I think a lot of people don't actually look at those policies in the fine print or even understand the technical jargon inside of it to know that, there are, in a lot of cases, these requirements that really push, um, you know, things within your organization, security measures that you can put in place um, and should put in place uh, to try to limit the damage should something happen. And so because people aren't putting those there, you know, I mean, you can go to the point of having a breach or having an incident and potentially have your policy not kick in or them fight coverage because they can claim that you were negligent in what you were doing, or you didn't uphold your end of that insurance contract. Um, you know, and so it, uh, there's a whole bunch of things that could potentially be there. And this is actually an area where, you know, we, we license software that can help us audit your policy to make sure that you are in fact compliant. Um, but, you know, uh, one of the ones that I see probably first and foremost, and I, every time I've ever gotten pulled in by a company, um, you know, that, that's kind of contact us and said, hey, we had a cyber incident. We'd like to, to enlist your services to help. You know, we've got an external firm that's doing this and we really need your help on the IT side. You know, our IT vendor wasn't doing this or we had a problem here. 
the first question every attorney's ever asked is, do you have MFA, um, yep. multi-factor authentication, which effectively means that if you log into an account, your password is not the only thing. You get a notification on your phone or you've got a, a little hardware token you have to plug into the computer or push a button on. Um, but I, I've never been involved in anything at all with some sort of breach or some sort of incident. And that's not the first question that gets thrown around in the room. So, yeah. Well, I mean, what they say is that, you know, that eliminates a tremendous amount of threats. If you have multi-factor, it, it really does prevent, you know, someone overseas from logging in to even your email account, you know, to, to go back to that, that, uh, incident with a, a single user's mailbox, you know, if we had MFA would, would that have not been an incident? Probably not, you know, and those are basic steps to take and to implement relatively cost-effective. Yep. Yeah. And another one going back to, we had talked a little bit about, um, logs on firewalls. I mean, I've seen, you know, requirements for backup retention. Um, you know, there are companies that have to meet certain security standards or, or certain compliance measures that may actually need to log collect for a certain amount of time. You know, if you're not a meet or if you're not meeting or upholding your end of compliance requirements in a lot of cases, and again, we're not, a, we're not attorneys, we're not insurance people. Um, but, but it obviously raises a lot of questions surrounding, is your policy going to be there to protect you? If, if you needed to be NIST compliant, you're not NIST compliant, or you need to be, um, PCI and you're not PCI. Um, you know, it, these sorts of things can have real ramifications in terms of the potential costs, the penalties, the fines and the fees that you may have to pay, you know, and, and that could even impact your, your policies coverage level or, or response to this. Yeah. And I can tell you too, that like the attorney end of this can be as bad or worse than the actual breach, depending on the event. So, you know, a lot of these things aren't just a, a simple, Hey, you know, 5,000 names got released, multiply that by a hundred dollars kind of thing. It's, I pay the forensic company. I, I pay, you know, cause in a lot of cases it's, here's a giant list of emails. Give me, give me all of the people out of these emails, you know, their name, their address, their, their, credit card number, like all that information that you collected, you got to put out into a nice, pretty Excel sheet to feed in somewhere. And that, again, it's, it's not an IT function. It, it's, it's really a forensic search and a forensic specialty. So, yeah. And, uh, failing to do so can, you know, open yourself up to some, some legal issues. I know that Vermont has its own, the breach notice act that where you're required to notify both the attorney general and everyone who potentially was affected by this. And it's yeah. something like you've got 14 days to talk to the attorney general. And I believe it's 45 days to notify clients that were affected by it. Well, in, in typical America fashion, um, you know, the, the challenge is that Vermont has that set. New York has a different set. New yep. Hampshire is a different set. So th these aren't even standardized. So when this happens across a business that's big enough to cross those state thresholds, and this is where the cost can just balloon, you yourself may only really operate within your state, but how many of the people you converse with for your business, like your vendors, are only in your state? And so maybe you're even just a, a company that does roofing or something. If your materials are coming from vendors in three different states, you now may have information from those vendors. Um, maybe they feed you leads or something. Or I mean, again, it, you get into this really weird situation where the information is probably broader than you think. You know, going back to the requirements piece, I, I think another one too that we sometimes see 
and this actually stems from some of those state things uh, with requirements. You know, in a lot of cases, people need a, a documented incident response plan, and they actually need a to a notification in a certain timeline. Um, that that response timeline becomes critical, and if you miss those, um, you know that that can put you into noncompliance, um, and it can get you into trouble with the states. You know, and, and so if people are, you know, not following those, they're not they're not actually notifying, um, they're not going through their plan, they're not updating it with a certain frequency or regularity. I mean, all, all of those things can really become sticking points or, or problems. And these are all really best practice things that help you respond effectively if something does happen. But, you know, I, I think we're at that point where it, it's not a matter of if it happens, it, it's an eventuality that every company in existence at some point is going to experience some level of event whether small or high. And so you, you kind of need to plan for the worst and hope for the best. Yeah, So absolutely. I mean, and and cybersecurity is not about preventing threats. It's about how you respond to incidents. Right. Yep. Yeah. And so a couple, um, you know, lingering things too. I think if, if you look at, um, you know, we talked about some of the things you can do within your network system encryption. You know, I, I've seen cases where, you know, not encrypting your laptop, but having HIPAA data on it, um, knowingly sending that out into the wild. Um, you know, th these sorts of things can get you into trouble and really create a, a lot of problems where, you know, policies may may have a problem with that to a point where they could claim that you were negligent in, in how you did your operations. You know, I think it becomes really important to just, I mean, policies in general, locking down how people use assets. But how you look at your own use of your assets and whether or not you actually audit what you have in your, your security posture or whether you just accept that I set it up day one to be secure. So it's got to be secure forever. And the fact of the matter is almost every business in existence needs to go back and revisit that with some regularity. And a, a regular system maintenance plan doesn't do those things out of the box. It takes time, resources and, and money to put people on trying to break into your network, scanning it for, for um, you know, third-party patch compliance. I mean, really big business doesn't even have the same company that implements their procedures and controls, verify and audit those. Um, you know, you, you will get into a point where the really safe thing to do is to have an external auditor come in, tell you where the deficiencies are, and then push those back on the person doing the work to ensure that you have a check and balance. And that's not to say that, the internal company or, or group doing that that IT function isn't auditing themselves as well, because that's just part of, of good practice. You know, but a lot of companies today, they're they're not even asking the questions of, well, do we have these things in place or are we actively trying to do these? And so when you you look at you know their particular stance from a, an incident level, I mean they're they're really not putting the right things in place to make sure that, you know, if there's a breach, that they're protected, that they're minimizing the risk of a breach. And it, it can get to the point where it almost becomes negligent. And, and that's really where I think today this industry is evolving so quickly and things are taking off so fast that, you know, and this is part of why we're talking about it today. I mean, we, we really need to start asking better questions, having deeper conversations. I mean, th these are all things that we've started talking about with our customer base um, because it's, it's rapidly evolving and the costs are ballooning out of control. And all you got to do is is search the news to see just how bad this problem's really getting. Yeah, and uh, I just want to throw in there, um, you know, having another company run your audits, and then rerunning your audits afterwards. You know, after a set yeah. period of time of saying like, okay, here's where I found you deficient. Implement these changes, 
passing those that off to whoever is managing your IT saying, here's what they found, implement these changes, and then having a re-audit so that, you know, you can confirm that those changes have actually been implemented. Because otherwise, you know, the report does nothing for you. I, I will say that I, I know people who work in the industry who are running these audits and they will come back and the exact same things that they found on the previous audit still haven't been addressed. Yep. No, that's, that's a great point. You know, and I, I think this is an always evolving thing, you know, and I don't know, five years ago, we, we had very different conversations around this today. They're, they're getting even more advanced and we're taking even more steps, but I think it's just important that, you know, business owners continue to, to subverse themselves in, in what's going on in this field and, and keep a pulse on it because it, it is a real potential threat. So, but I, you know, Conrad, I, I really thank you for your time. I, I think this was a great talk. Um, you know, I, I hope it gave some people some stuff to think about, um, you know, and hopefully not too scary. But there's a lot we can do together to, to, I think, reduce our risk, you know, but of course, like everything that can't be zero. And I, I think we live with that realization. And if we plan for it accordingly, then hopefully we're prepared. So. All right, Brett. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Well, be well, everyone.